0: Last month, we opened the story of Esther and studied the amazing parallels to the great controversy between Christ and Satan in the characters, types, and symbols of the events involved. This month, we are going to look at the thrilling epic plot to destroy God's church in one day and the powerful deliverance wrought by the precarious risk of Esther and Mordecai. You will see clearly how this children's story actually has an important message for us who are living in the last generation. Let us open with prayer. Our Father in heaven, teach us, we pray, about the things that are coming upon your true church, In these last days, may the story of Esther come alive to us as you intended it. Open our understanding that we may see your sustaining and guiding hand in the shadows, keeping watch above your own. In Jesus' name, Amen. As we begin. Let me read an important statement from Prophets and Kings, page 605. The trying experiences that came to God's people in the days of Esther were not peculiar to that age alone. The Revelator, looking down the ages to the close of time, has declared, The dragon was wroth with the woman." and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Revelation 12.17 The same spirit that in ages past led men to persecute the true church will in the future lead to the pursuance of a similar course toward those who maintain their loyalty to God. Even now, preparations are being made for this last great conflict. This statement gives us some insight into the future, but also into the story of Esther. It actually suggests that Esther is a type of the remnant church. Imagine the wisdom of God in placing a story in the Bible that has principles so perfectly suited to teach us what to expect in the near future. Those who do not have a clear understanding of prophecy and end-time events will have a difficult time comprehending the deeper things of the book of Esther. But those who do, we'll find in the story of Esther a revelation that goes way beyond the story itself. And this is the way God often works. He operates in the shadows. He sends coded messages to His people. If they are tuned in and they know the encryption, they can understand the message and prepare. All it requires is a spiritual mind that earnestly seeks to know and experience God's truth. Last month we learned that Ahasuerus plays a role that symbolizes God's place on the larger stage of the great controversy. Vashti symbolizes the Hebrew church, which was deposed from being God's chosen church because of its failure to obey Christ and represent him properly. And Esther specifically represents the remnant people, whose beautiful character reveals Christ to the world in fullness and beauty. Mordecai strongly represents Christ in many ways throughout the story. He adopted Esther as Christ adopts his church. He sits in the gate of the palace, securing the way to the king, as Christ the way, the truth, and the life secures the way to the Father for the repentant soul. For no man cometh unto the Father but by me, Jesus said. Mordecai is also one of the two antagonists, just as Christ is one of the two great antagonists contending for supremacy. We noted that the sanctuary message and the purification of God's people is also in the story of Esther, as is the day of Pentecost, the Lord's Supper, the time of trouble, and numerous other powerful types representing events to come and of God's love and care for his people. In the story, Esther is the last woman, apparently, to come to the court. Chapter 2, verse 8 says that after many maidens were gathered together unto Shushan the palace to the custody of Hegai, that Esther was brought also unto the king's house, to the custody of Haggai, keeper of the women. Obviously, Mordecai waited until after the other maidens had arrived before he let Esther go to the court. No doubt he wanted to send her last, so that the impression she made would not be lost among all the others. And doesn't Jesus save the best for last? His remnant church and those that constitute it will have the greatest amount of light. Their characters will be the most beautifully developed in all history. Sadly today, too many of those professing to be part of the remnant don't comprehend our privilege and calling. No doubt God will have to bypass those that fail to live up to it. Did you notice how that Esther was given the best place in the house of women? Likewise, the remnant church has the greatest light, the greatest privileges, the greatest opportunities. How dare we squander them in selfish worldliness? Furthermore, Esther was the last to go in before the king. She becomes his bride. When Ahasuerus saw her, he had no need of other women. There are other women involved in the story which are not finally chosen, suggesting that there are other churches that for a time have their place in God's work the Lutherans, Calvinists, Methodists, etc. But after a time, they drop away, perhaps because of their failure to advance with light and truth. But for the last crisis in the history of the world, which is prefigured by the book of Esther, God chooses the remnant church as his bride, to represent him fully chapter 3 of the book of esther opens with a new character after these things did king ahasuerus promote haman the son of hamadatha the agagite and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him notice that haman is an Agagite. Who were the Agagites? These were direct descendants of King Agag, whom Samuel cut in pieces when Saul disobeyed God and did not utterly destroy the Amalekites and all their assets. This was when Samuel made his famous statement to Saul, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to hearken than the fat of rams. Apparently, there were either some of Agag's family that Saul spared, still hanging around, or perhaps more likely, there were some of Agag's descendants in other nations through the common practice of intermarriage among royalty. Nevertheless, Haman, no doubt, made his way up through the ranks of the Persian government during the first four years of Esther's reign as queen of Persia. No doubt Haman knew the story of how the Jews destroyed his ancestors and his nation. No doubt there would be a natural animosity in his heart against the Jews because of this. Haman is a type of Satan. He loves to be worshipped. Haman was seated above all the other princes in authority, just like Lucifer was in heaven, above the angels. The king made him the grand vizier, or the prime minister of Persia. Ahasuerus also issued a decree that all the king's servants must reverence or worship this man and prostrate themselves before him, as was the custom among the Orientals. In the great controversy, God makes no such decree, but he does allow Satan to make his own decrees, which creates the same effect. Remember that in allegory, Not every point should be expected to apply exactly. God is trying to show us principles through human agencies that will be repeated in our day. Verse 2. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not nor did him reverence. The command of the king required an act of worship, the worship of a man set up above all other men. Revelation 13 verse 4 says that they worshipped the dragon, that's Satan, which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast. The beast is the Antichrist, the Pope in Rome, who is Satan's representative on earth. Notice that in worshipping the beast, they are also worshipping the dragon or Satan, because the dragon gave him his power, says verse 2. In Haman we have a representative of Satan and the beast in human form. Mordecai cannot worship this man and be loyal to God. Haman represents both the Antichrist and the dragon in the great controversy, the enemies of God's people. To worship Haman would be unthinkable. Likewise Christ, of whom Mordecai is a type, In the wilderness of temptation, refuse to bow to Satan, the enemy of God's people. Would to God that his people today were as loyal to him as Mordecai. Today we often have Haman the Agagite in our homes and in our lives. There is Haman the soap opera, Haman the football game, Haman the smutty magazine. Haman the low-cut dress, Haman the earring, Haman the refrigerator, Haman the box of chocolates, Haman the coffee pot, Haman the caffeine drink, and even Haman the wine glass. Perhaps you can think of the Haman in your life. Anything that rules our lives, beclouds our minds, disobeys God— reduces our loyalty to God, or takes time away from our worship of God, directly or indirectly, is a Haman in our home. May God help His people to be free from this menace. May God's people wake up soon, before it is ever too late. This also brings us to the key issues in the great controversy. Satan has always sought to usurp the homage that belongs to Christ. The central argument in the great controversy is over loyalty and worship. Here in this story, we see the same principle at work. Haman is given worship by the whole realm through the princes, representing the 127 provinces of the entire kingdom just as Satan will be given the worship and homage of the whole world, except for a few people who will resist him right up to the very end. The king's servants were curious about this. People don't just disobey the command of the king or his prime minister. Verse 3 and 4. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass, when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. This is understandable. These are Mordecai's colleagues You know how it is when someone is different from everybody else, especially when it appears to be in defiance of an established rule or principle. Everybody wants to know why. Why don't you eat meat? Why don't you dance? Why don't you watch football games or other television programs? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Mordecai told them that he was a Jew. He had no choice. This was the truth. This meant that his colleagues and Haman were going to assume that if one Jewish man would defy the king's decree on religious grounds, so would all of the Jews. Haman would naturally see this as a conspiracy. Likewise, In the last generation, God's people will be targeted as a group as well as individuals. They will be targeted collectively as those involved in conspiracy and treason against the government. And sure enough, Haman discovered that Mordecai would not bow down to him The Scripture says in verses 5 and 6 that When Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. However, we are told that he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone. For they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. Notice that Haman was wroth. Mordecai was an affront to his pride and selfishness, which was easy for him to interpret as treason. Do you think it will be easy for the enemies of God's people to interpret their actions and loyalty to God as treason? Of course it will. In fact, that is exactly how God's faithful people will be characterized as unpatriotic, conspirators, extremists, and traitors. Listen to this interesting statement from Prophets and Kings, page 605. The decree that will finally go forth against the remnant people of God will be very similar to that issued by Ahasuerus against the Jews. Today, the enemies of the true church see in the little company keeping the Sabbath commandment a Mordecai in the gate. The reverence of God's people for His law is a constant rebuke to those who have cast off the fear of the Lord and are trampling on his Sabbath. Think about this. At the end of time, the enemies of God and his church see a Mordecai in the gate. The church is to represent Christ. They live by his law. And, in a way, they are treated as Christ was treated. Mordecai was the object of Haman's wrath, just like Christ is the object of Satan's wrath. Haman intended to kill all of Mordecai's people, just like Satan intends to destroy all of Christ's people, his last true church on earth. They will be scattered, no doubt, just like the Jews were scattered all over the provinces of Persia. They will not likely have a visible legal structure to protect them or guide them. They will be left to the mercy and guidance of God. So now Haman begins a conspiracy of his own in an effort to counteract the conspiracy that he imagines the Jews are developing against him. He begins to plan against all the Jews because of Mordecai. But he has to make sure that he has the favor of the gods. So, he casts the lot, as it says in verse 7, for almost a whole year, looking for the right time to approach King Ahasuerus. Finally, it is decided And Haman goes to the king. Chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. And Haman said unto king Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all people. Neither keep they the king's laws, Therefore it is not for the king's profit to suffer them. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. Haman accuses the Jews of treason. He lies about them. He tells partial truths. He makes sweeping generalizations. He even tries to bribe the king. Notice Haman's statement about the Jews Neither keep they the king's laws. Was that true? No. They were known as law-abiding citizens. Jeremiah had strongly admonished them to be law-abiding citizens wherever they would be. Faithful Jews only broke the civil law when it conflicted with the law of God, such as what Mordecai was doing. Do you think that a time is coming when you will be faced with the same situation? Do you think that you will ever have to break a civil law of the land in order to be loyal to the law of God? I do. It is called the National Sunday Law, and there will eventually be a Universal Sunday Law also. Here God has given us, in the story of Esther, a forecast of the National Sunday Law which we know about from other scriptures. But its principles are embedded in this story. The National Sunday Law is about worship of Satan in opposition to the worship of God, isn't it? This same principle is found in the story of Esther. It is very interesting to note that all through history the largest numbers of people persecuted for any reason have always been Sabbatarians, that is, Bible Sabbath keepers. And in the final crisis, it will again be Sabbath keepers who are the target of oppression. The Jews in World War II were Sabbath keepers, weren't they? The Christians in the early church were Sabbath keepers, too. During the Dark Ages, many of the Jews were persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church. They too, of course, were Sabbatarians. And so were some of the Waldensees and others who have always been loyal to God's law. And now we see it again in the story of Esther. The Jews were singled out for genocide, just like Sabbath keepers will be targeted in the last generation. One wonders what it will be like to be targeted for genocide. Read the accounts of the Jews during the Holocaust. It will all happen again, even in this enlightened age. Have you noticed how some people have acted in the aftermath of September 11 attacks on the United States? There is a spirit of revenge that plays itself out in acts of abuse and even murder. These things go way beyond reason. Iraq has become America's scapegoat. Its way of getting revenge. A number of American soldiers, for example, have been accused by the American military of murder, war crimes, and lesser charges over incidents in Iraq that went beyond reason. There is an increasing anger and thirst for blood that, according to Scripture, tells us that the end is near. Watch what happens on the news concerning the way angry people treat others. One day that anger will be turned against God's people. It is all spelled out in great controversy. Some will even try to assault God's people before the death decree deadline to take their lives. Listen to this awesome statement from The Great Controversy, page 631. The heavenly sentinels, faithful to their trust, continue their watch. Though a general decree has fixed the time, When commandment keepers may be put to death, their enemies will in some cases anticipate the decree, and before the time specified will endeavor to take their lives. But none can pass the mighty guardians stationed about every faithful soul. Some are assailed in their flight from the cities and villages, but the swords raised against them break and fall powerless as a straw. Others are defended by angels in the form of men of war. Please note that in the case of the Jews in the days of Esther, as well as during the crisis at the end of time, the general death decree bypasses the court system. You cannot expect to have a fair hearing in court. God will have to use other means to preserve his people. After all, isn't that what he wants to do anyway? So that we will not depend on the arm of flesh or the arm of the law to de- defend and protect us. Do you think there will be a general breakdown of the court systems of this world? Absolutely. Do you think that there will be a general breakdown of Democratic and Republican governments that will be replaced with various forms of dictators? I would not be surprised at all. Your only hope in the final crisis will be the angels of God. Speaking of angels... Here is another statement from page 630 of the Great Controversy. Could men see with heavenly vision? They would behold companies of angels that excel in strength, stationed about those who have kept the word of Christ's patience. With sympathizing tenderness, angels have witnessed their distress and have heard their prayers, They are waiting the word of their commander to snatch them from their peril, but they must wait yet a little longer. The people of God must drink of the cup and be baptized with the baptism. The very delay, so painful to them, is the best answer to their petitions. As they endeavor to wait trustingly for the Lord to work, They are led to exercise faith, hope, and patience, which have been too little exercised during their religious experience. I want to be spiritually ready for that, don't you? Thank God for angels that excel in strength. Do you think Esther had the angels by her side? Absolutely. Do you think the same God has angels stationed by your side in every emergency? Of course He does. If you are faithful to God through Christ's power, you can have confidence that His angels that excel in strength are with you too. Verse 10 And the king took his ring from his hand and gave it unto Haman the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the Jew's enemy. And the king said unto Haman, The silver is given to thee, the people also, to do with them as it seemeth good to thee. We are told that Satan himself, the hidden instigator of the scheme, was trying to rid the earth of those who preserve the knowledge of the true God. That's Prophets and Kings, page 600. Notice that Haman is characterized as the Jews' enemy. Likewise, Satan is the enemy of all spiritual Jews. Remember the scripture that says, If ye be Christ's, then ye are Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. If you are one of those then Satan will be on your track. Notice also that Haman must ask Ahasuerus for the authority to hurt God's people. Likewise, Satan must ask permission to bring trouble on us, including the great time of trouble that the remnant will pass through. Remember the story of Job. Satan had to get permission BEFORE HE COULD TOUCH HIM. IT IS INTERESTING TO SEE THAT IN VERSE 15 WE ARE TOLD THAT THE POSTS WENT OUT ALL OVER THE KINGDOM. IT WAS CYRUS THAT HAD ESTABLISHED THE PERSIAN POSTAL SYSTEM USING FAST HORSES AND RELAY STATIONS ALL THROUGHOUT THE KINGDOM. THE PONY EXPRESS WAS NOT THE FIRST OF ITS KIND. So the news traveled rather quickly, and it wasn't long before the Jews were in deep anguish. Their great time of trouble had come, and God's people were not ready for it. Do you think God's people would be ready if the time of trouble came upon us now? I don't think so. Satan's purpose is to keep his plans hidden for as long as possible and to keep God's people asleep in their sins so that they will not be ready for the almost overwhelming surprise that will overtake them like a thief in the night. My friends, we must get ready. Do not delay. Satan is still at it. I'm reading now from the fifth volume of the Testimonies to the Church, page 450 and 451. In connection with the story of Esther, Ellen White writes, The decree which is to go forth against the people of God will be very similar to that issued by Ahasuerus against the Jews in the time of Esther the Persian edict sprang from the malice of Haman toward Mordecai. Not that Mordecai had done him harm, but he had refused to show him reverence which belongs only to God. The king's decision against the Jews was secured under false pretenses through misrepresentation of that peculiar people. Satan instigated the scheme in order to rid the earth of those who preserved the knowledge of the true God. The same masterful mind that plotted against the faithful in ages past is still seeking to rid the earth of those who fear God and obey His law. Satan will excite indignation against the humble minority who conscientiously refuse to accept popular customs and traditions. Men of position and reputation will join with the lawless and the vile to take counsel against the people of God. Wealth, genius, education will combine to cover them with contempt, persecuting rulers, ministers, and church members will conspire against them. With voice and pen, by boasts, threats, and ridicule, they will seek to overthrow their faith. By false representations and angry appeals, they will stir up the passions of the people. Not having a thus saith the scriptures to bring against the advocates of the Bible Sabbath They will resort to oppressive enactments to supply the lack. To secure popularity and patronage, legislatures will yield to the demand for a Sunday law. Those who fear God cannot accept an institution that violates a precept of the Decalogue. On this battlefield comes the last great conflict of the controversy between truth and error. And we are not left in doubt as to the issue. Now, as in the days of Mordecai, the Lord will vindicate his truth and his people. Here again, we see type meeting antitype. God has given us a clear illustration of the future of His faithful people. Shouldn't we take heed and prepare for it? How is your spiritual walk with God? Can you be a Mordecai in the gate? Can you be an Esther who will act in the fear of God when circumstances demand it? I pray that you will. I pray that I will. It will be an inestimable tragedy if anyone listening to this tape would compromise in order to avoid the human consequences of obedience to God. May God help you to be faithful. All these things that we clearly see happened in the time of Esther will happen again during the final crisis. Chapter 4 Verses 1-3 through three. When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry and came even before the king's gate. For none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. In every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, and fasting, and weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. In these verses, we learn that there is a terrible time of trouble coming upon the people of God. God's people are blamed for things of which they are not guilty. This causes them great anguish, the worst they have ever experienced. Have you ever been through anything like that? I have. I know what it feels like, and I know the anguish of heart that goes with it. I've not felt the strength or intensity of the final time of trouble, of course, but I know just by personal experience how some of these things feel. These Sabbath keepers were placed in the most unfavorable light and visited with the severest penalty, though they had done nothing worthy of such treatment. Likewise, circumstances in the final crisis will bring God's faithful remnant into great anguish. The remnant will have done nothing worthy of death. They have given the warning. They have exposed the false Sabbath. But the world-loving multitudes, including some of their fellow church members, and even their leaders, will abandon them and accuse them. They become their worst enemies. Have you ever had close friends turn on you? I have. I know what it is like. It makes you wonder if there is a God of justice out there. It tests your faith. It makes you feel isolated and alone. It makes you question your experience and your life mission. It takes all your energy to hang on to Christ. That is the way it is going to be during the time of trouble, only worse. During Esther's crisis, she had to come face to face with her mission and her calling. Why was she there in the kingdom? The God who has all foreknowledge had placed her there for such a time as this. The same God who still has all foreknowledge, has placed you where you are for such a time as this. Mordecai's response is no doubt similar to how Christ feels when his church is in anguish. No doubt he too is grieved and longs to deliver them. Yet it is often the very crisis that the church needs to purify it and make it what Christ wants it to be. Esther's maids heard what had happened and how Mordecai was at the gate in sackcloth and ashes. They tell Esther, and she has a dialogue with Mordecai through a middleman. Mordecai warns her that in spite of the law that no one could enter the king's presence without being summoned, she must go in unto the king. She must be discerning, wise, prudent, but she must take action and soon. This is very risky because it could mean her death and the loss of all her people." Think not with thyself, he says in verse 13, that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. You too, he says, will be destroyed by this decree. The king does not know of Esther's race or religion. This is going to be quite a. I I love Mordecai's faith. He is not unaware of God's power. He recognizes that God does have a plan for his work and that deliverance would be assured. He adds, For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed." Mordecai knew that if the Jews were destroyed, there would be no promised Messiah. He knew that God would deliver his people, but he did not know how. He simply relied upon the promises of God. This is true faith. True faith accepts God's promise as a fact, even though it looks impossible. So Mordecai reminded Esther of her larger mission. She is now more than a queen. She is the intercessor. God placed her in the kingdom as queen just for this crisis hour. And the message comes clear down through the millennia to us. God's remnant people are the connection point between the world and the omnipotent God in heaven. As the world becomes chaotic, people will become more concerned about their souls and will listen in astonishment as the message is given. It will be God's remnant people that will point them to Christ and the full light of present truth that will save their souls. You have a work to do. Learn the message. Study your Bible and Spirit of Prophecy books. Then share what you know with others. If you hold your peace, God will use others, but you will be lost. If you don't act in time of crisis, God will deliver, but you will miss out. What is our responsibility in this matter? When God moves forward in His work... It divides men into two classes, those who follow in the way he leads and those who turn aside. Are not the words of Mordecai to Esther applicable to each of us today? For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance rise to the Jews, God's people, from another place, but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? That's from Loma Linda Messages, page 38. Also, I want you to notice that it was Mordecai that instructed Esther to go to Ahasuerus to plead for her life and the life of her people. Likewise, Jesus instructs His people to go to the Father in heaven in His name and seek forgiveness and justice, plead for their lives and for the deliverance of the remnant, just like Esther was to do with Ahasuerus. Esther's confidence in Mordecai and his unwavering faith in God no doubt helped her gain an inner peace about her appointed work. Similarly, God's remnant people can have that same confidence in Christ who gives them His faith and inner peace that they will be accepted of God and delivered. Esther felt the need of support. Verse 16. Go, she said, Gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish." Whenever there is a spiritual crisis, God's people must pray and seek God's face. We must do that in our personal lives also. God's remnant people must especially fast and pray as they see the crisis approaching. Esther knew that the crisis demanded action. She also knew that it was risky but she trusted her soul to the mighty God of heaven. As the crisis approaches the remnant, they too must take action to give the message and expose the efforts of Satan to destroy God's people, just as Esther exposed the efforts of Haman to ruin God's church. Let me read it to you from The Great Controversy, page Six hundred six. As the time comes for the message of the third angel to be given with greatest power, the Lord will work through humble instruments, leading the minds of those who consecrate themselves to His service. The laborers will be qualified rather by the unction of His Spirit than by the training of literary institutions. Men of faith and prayer will be constrained to go forth with holy zeal, declaring the words which God gives them. The sins of Babylon will be laid open, the fearful results of enforcing the observances of the church by civil authority, the inroads of spiritualism, The steady but rapid progress of the papal power, all will be unmasked. They will not think of preserving their lives. Esther, the type of the remnant church, bravely determines to do her part without regard to the consequences. Her duty is clear. She must make her move. Next month, we will see how God works for the deliverance of His people through the story of Esther. Perhaps by now you have a clear picture of how this Bible story applies to our own future. If you choose to read ahead, think carefully about how God's plan for the deliverance of His people is revealed in this amazing story. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray that we may n- have the courage of Esther to face the daily crises in our lives. Also, we pray that you will prepare us for the great final crisis that is about to come upon the world. We are unprepared for it. There are many around us who do not know the truth and they too are unprepared. Many of our fellow professed believers are unprepared for it. Perhaps even we are not yet prepared for it either. God, help us to do something about it. Help us to learn how to be pure and holy. Give us peace about the future. Father, we leave ourselves in your hands. We ask that you will make us like you in character and in faith. Oh, give us that faith that Esther had. May Jesus speak words of courage and faith to us, just as Mordecai did to Esther. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. hope you've been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you for your support. The following is our monthly prophetic intelligence briefing, a feature that brings you current events in light of prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times, telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month
1: Christians mocked in Drag Queen fundraiser for Planned Parenthood. Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry News. My name is Sabrina Peterson, and I'm filling in for Pastor Mayer while he's on medical leave. Pastors and Christian activists known for protesting Planned Parenthood and Drag Queen Story Hour events were ridiculed and mocked at a fundraiser for the abortion giant. An activist group, organized on Facebook called Spokane United Against Religious Extremism and the Church at Planned Parenthood, in reference to a church that gathers weekly for worship outside a Planned Parenthood clinic in Spokane, Washington, called the Church at Planned Parenthood, organized the October 30th Halloween-themed drag show fundraiser that included an auction featuring giant cardboard cutouts of area Christians known to protest Drag Queen Story Hour events. The event also took aim at local pastors who are frequently seen praying outside Planned Parenthood abortion facilities, according to Anne Bohawk, founder of 500 Moms Strong, a nonprofit organization comprised of mothers who are saying no to the misogyny of Drag Queen Story Hour and the transgender movement that is taking over our culture, the group's Facebook page states. Searching the social media pages of the drag performers, Bohawk said she saw photos and video footage taken at the event and fundraiser, which she described as a slave-style auction where the Christian leaders were mocked. In an emailed statement to the Christian Post, a person who participated in the event and goes by Tyranny Hex said Bohawk's description of the skit as a slave-style auction was inaccurate. The cutouts were part of a fundraising game. They were not sold. Buckets were placed at the feet of the faces and the audience came up to put money into the buckets. We then tallied the total in each bucket and made a donation to Planned Parenthood in the name of the leaders and the loudest of TCAPP. To cheers and laughs from the crowd, the drag queen performers were followed by three dancers holding large photos and cutouts of three Christians who've been protesting drag queen story hour events in the community, including Pastor Ken Peters, Pastor Afshin Yagtin, and Bohawk herself. It echoed the uproarious laughter of audiences that laughed and mocked blacks and women in the minstrel shows of not that long ago, she noted in a blog post last week. Other performers then held up the cutouts of six other local Christians, including those affiliated with the church at Planned Parenthood, lined up on a stage where the donations to the abortion business were made. The church at Planned Parenthood describes itself as a worship service at the gates of hell, a form of non-confrontational spiritual warfare. An October 31st Facebook post by Spokane United Against Religious Extremism and the Church at Planned Parenthood, noted that the cutouts and photos raised a total of $290.04 and included the individual amounts raised from mocking each pastor and Christian activist. The total raised was later increased to $1,865, all of which will be going to Planned Parenthood. Bohawk told the Christian Post on Tuesday that she's not surprised by Planned Parenthood teaming up with drag queens against Christians, who've been especially vocal against their antics. Christians are the biggest threat to their agendas. We are the only ones standing in their way and telling them, no, you will not abort babies, no, you will not exploit vulnerable women, and no, you will not expose our children to sexual deviancy and gender confusion, she said. Using effigies and a slave auction-style fundraiser to raise money for an organization whose existence is based upon the extermination of black Americans is in very poor taste, Bohawk said. But again, not surprising given drag itself is rooted in the blackface minstrel shows of the last century. Bohawk stressed that a nefarious common thread exists tying drag queens and Planned Parenthood together. Both groups dehumanize, exploit, terrorize, and commit violence against women. Abortion is violence against women and their babies, and drag is a misogynistic mockery of women, she said, referencing a video showing a drag queen in a New York gay bar dramatizing a woman aborting her baby and then cannibalizing it. This is a perfect example of the partnership between drag and the abortion giant. These people are evil, their actions speak for themselves, and Christians can't keep looking the other way forever. Evil is becoming more blatant and unashamed in its mockery of those who stand for Christian morals. Likewise also as it was in the days of Lot, even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Luke 17, 28, and 30. Next, LGBTQ Characters on U.S. TV at an All-Time High For the fourth consecutive year, broadcast television has featured a record percentage of LGBTQ characters, according to a report released Thursday by the media advocacy group GLAAD. Last year, GLAAD called on the broadcast networks to have 10% of its regular characters on primetime scripted series identify as LGBTQ by 2020. According to its 2019-20, Where We Are on TV report, the networks more than exceeded that goal. Of the 879 regular characters scheduled to appear this season, 90, or 10.2%, are LGBTQ. This is the highest percentage GLAAD has found in the 15 years it has kept such a count. We made a specific call, and to see the networks surpass it is really noteworthy, Megan Townsend, GLAAD's director of entertainment research and analysis, told NBC News. It's especially exciting to see the number of trans men on TV more than double this year, which last year's report really pushed television networks to do, and to see that for the first time, LGBTQ women outnumber LGBTQ men on broadcast. Among the other significant findings is a marked increase in the racial diversity of LGBTQ characters on broadcast. For the second year in a row, LGBTQ people of color outnumber white LGBTQ characters, with 52% of queer regular characters being of color on broadcast series. There are also nine characters with HIV, AIDS, on broadcast television, an increase from the seven characters counted last year. Though considerable progress has been made, Townsend said there were still steps networks needed to take to ensure more equitable LGBTQ representation, which is why GLADS Media Institute works with networks and shows to consult on storylines, find queer talent, train writers' rooms to talk about LGBTQ issues, and promote projects. There's a lot of great numbers to celebrate, but there's still work to be done, Townsend said. Progress is also still found in clusters. Even though there are hundreds of cable networks, 44% of LGBTQ representation on television can be found on just three networks, Showtime, Freeform, and FX. GLAAD also found that only 26% of LGBTQ characters on television identify as bisexual plus, a number that is not reflective of their presence, given bisexual plus people compose the majority of the LGBTQ community. Another gap in representation includes LGBTQ characters with disabilities. While GLAAD counted 27 characters with disabilities this year, the highest percentage its reports have ever noted, this number still falls short of the U.S. population of people with disabilities. Additionally, there is only one asexual character across all platforms, Todd Chavez on Netflix's BoJack Horseman, which is a drop from two asexual characters on television last year. This year, GLAAD is calling for 20% of characters on primetime scripted broadcast series Be LGBTQ by 2020. And for half of all LGBTQ characters on every platform, be people of color within the next two years. From Batwoman to Legends of Tomorrow, to Shit's Creek, to One Day at a Time, to The Politician, there's so many great shows already out there and many upcoming projects we're looking forward to, Townsend said. The key is making sure it's never left to one character to be the voice of the community even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example, Jude 7. Next, Switzerland's Supreme Court denies mother's right to homeschool. Switzerland's high court has ruled against a mother who wanted to homeschool her eight-year-old son. The mother resides in the city of Basel, where she applied for permission to homeschool her son in 2017, according to LifeSite News. School authorities dismissed the application and the court rejected the mother's appeal. She argued that the appeal court's decision was equivalent to prohibiting private learning at home, violating a constitutional right to privacy. Her argument was rejected by the Supreme Court, which stated that the constitutional right to a private life does not relate to homeschooling. Also, the court ruled that Switzerland's 26 cantons, or federal states, can authorize whether to allow or ban homeschooling. In Basel, homeschooling is permitted if applicants can show that the child's presence at school is impossible. The federal court had ruled previously that national law does not distinctly grant the right to private learning at home. Still, it ruled that cantons may determine how they conform to federal requirements for basic education. The Swiss Broadcasting Company reports there are more than 1,000 children who are homeschooled in Switzerland. Regulations vary throughout the cantons as some require teaching certificates for parents and others do not. Vaud, the third largest canton in Switzerland, has 600 homeschooled children, the highest number in the country but authorities are considering a crackdown on the homeschoolers by raising some of its regulations. According to the Swiss Broadcasting Corporation, Franziska Peterhans said her organization, which works with teachers, rejects homeschooling. Not every family can afford the resources needed to teach their children at home, so it creates inequalities in society, she said. Many children who are homeschooled have less interaction with their peers outside the family so are less socialized. A study conducted in 2003 was published in the Peabody Journal of Education, indicating that there is no supporting evidence toward the objection to homeschooling. Researcher Brian D. Ray wrote a summary of the study, pointing out that the actions of the state are a form of control. He wrote, the alleged harms of homeschooling, or arguments for more control of it, are fundamentally philosophical and push for the state, rather than parents, to be in primary and ultimate control over the education and upbringing of their children, so they will come to hold worldviews more aligned with the state and opponents of state-free homeschooling than with the children's parents and freely chosen relationships. Not all Christian families are capable of homeschooling, but for those who are, this method of education is the best option, providing a way for children to experience a well-rounded education. The laws in Switzerland are effectively preventing this possibility for Christian families to raise their children according to the principles of God. The system of education carried out for generations back has been destructive to health and even life itself. Many young children have passed five hours each day in schoolrooms not properly ventilated, nor sufficiently large for the healthful accommodations of the scholars. The air of such rooms soon becomes poison to the lungs that inhale it. Little children whose limbs and muscles are not strong and whose brains are undeveloped have been kept confined indoors to their injury. Parents should be the only teachers of their children until they have reached eight or ten years of age. As fast as their minds can comprehend it, the parents should open before them God's great book of nature. Parents can associate God with all his created works. The only schoolroom for children from 8 to 10 years of age should be in the open air, amid the opening flowers and nature's beautiful scenery. And their only textbooks should be the treasures of nature. These lessons, imprinted upon the minds of young children amid the pleasant, attractive scenes of nature, will not be soon forgotten. Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 19 and 21.
0: Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.